This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. It's part four of our Romanov series, and we have just entered World War One. Get your tissues ready because this episode and the next will be tear jerkers. In part four, we're taking it right through the murder of the Romanov family. Also, forewarning, it is brutal, the murder, and we're going into detail. So if that freaks you out, if you don't like that, if, you know, whatever thing you have with murder or talking about murder or, you know, the details of it, um, just to warn you, it's gruesome and we're talking about it in detail. Proceed with caution. All right, now this episode also features a promo from How I Met Your Friends, which can be found, as always, at the end of the episode. We have an exciting announcement, a podcast proclamation, if you will. So starting today, we'll be running our very first giveaway. All you need to do to enter is leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and send us a screenshot of it. You can message us on social media or shoot us an email um, at hello at dearworldlovehistory.com. Two, yes, Two lucky winners will win some of the podcast swag we've been working on behind the scenes. We've got pens, buttons, stickers. Oh, my. So the winners will be announced on November 2nd when our 14th episode goes live. And it'll be three days also before Dear World Love History's one-year birthday. Very exciting for us. Birthday, anniversary, birthiversary. I don't know. Whatever you want to call it. Speaking of social media... Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians and Instagram at Outlandish Historians for giveaway announcements and photos of the swag you could win. Our winners will be announced on both channels and on Facebook at Outlandish Historians. We know we're throwing a lot of social media at you right now, uh, but we've got one more, only the one, promise. So if Twitter and Instagram aren't your thing, join our Facebook group, The Outlandish Parlor Room, to chat and geek out over history. Now then, without further ado... Let's head on back to Imperial Russia, August 1914. So in our last episode, we ended with Nicholas and Russia declaring war on Germany. The Russian Empire had officially entered the First World War, the Great War, the war to end all wars, however you want to refer to it. Now, we have Austria and Germany facing off against Russia, Great Britain, and France. So back in part three, we mentioned the level of patriotism the Russian people were showing. Go Russia! Long live the Tsar! Russian people power! And so on. But, but, the peasants weren't as thrilled as others. Why? Because it was the peasants that had to go and actually fight the war. You know, not to say that others didn't, but a great chunk of the people who moonlighted as World War I soldiers were peasants. That meant leaving their families and livelihoods behind. Nicholas was actually quite nervous about the war, and rightly so. Remember that time Russia went to war against Japan and people got really mad and then had a mini-revolution? Yeah, he so didn't want that to happen again. Alexandra also wasn't a fan. You know, same reasons as Nicholas, and there were some that were different. She was born a German princess, and her brother was still in Germany. So naturally, she was worried about her family. Not Kaiser Wilhelm, though. 
So we're not getting into the particulars of the war. If we do, this episode is going to end up being three hours long. We're only going to mention the important things, as in what is relevant regarding Nicholas and his family. So what they were up to, how things affected them, etc. Battles, troop movements, and weaponry we'll mostly leave out. We'll tackle World War I in a later season. As with any war, nurses and doctors were needed to take care of the wounded. Duh. If you've seen Downton Abbey, then you've seen all the desperate call for nurses. Russia wasn't any different. As a larger country with a large fighting force, the government decided around 10,000 nurses would fit the bill. Minimum. Okay, and since so many nurses were needed, women were sped through the training process to be ready to serve. So training took two months instead of one year. Now, don't think that they were speeding women through and taking on subpar nurses as a result. Not even a little bit. If the women didn't meet the mark, they didn't become a nurse. In Russia, the nurses were known as Sisters of Mercy or Sostre Milisardia. And who joined the ranks of the Sisters of Mercy? None other than Alexandra, Olga, and Tatiana. They went through the training and became very dedicated nurses, known as Sister Romanova 1, 2, and 3. For all Alexandra's faults, we'll give her this. She was an excellent nurse, rolling up her sleeves and getting right into the thick of things. Olga and Tatiana as well. You can't take that away from them. At this point, Olga was 19 and Tatiana was 17. So while nursing, they wore the Red Cross uniform and they were often photographed in those uniforms. As a result, a lot of Russian women decided to become nurses as well. Since Anastasia and Maria weren't yet old enough, they couldn't become nurses. Instead, they would visit the hospitals to cheer up the soldiers. At this point, Maria was 15, while Anastasia was 13. They also had a hospital across from the Alexander Palace named for them, the hospital of Grand Duchesses Maria and Anastasia. It was at this hospital that Maria and Anastasia would visit the wounded. The girls read to the soldiers, played cards with them, and even made them little handmade presents. Side note, the Catherine Palace was one of dozens and dozens of palaces and large houses turned into hospitals for the soldiers. Big high five here to Dr. Vera Gidroitz, who was the doctor in charge of the hospital serving soldiers at Tsarskia Silo, and a surgeon, and a princess, and one of the first women in Russia to be recognized as a doctor. Olga and Tatiana spent a lot of their time at the annex, where they, along with Alexandra, dressed soldiers' wounds and helped out during surgeries. And they were often helping Dr. Gidroitz. So in addition to this, Alexandra made sure the staff wasn't treating them like Russian royals. No special treatment for the empress and the grand duchesses. When it came to nursing, Alexandra, Olga, and Tatiana were in the thick of it. They saw all kinds of wounds, surgeries, and amputations. The royals were not spared any of the bloody, gory details. Nor did they want to be spared. They took nursing very seriously and wanted to help in any way possible. Alexandra even carted away amputated limbs. Okay, when they weren't serving as nurses, Olga and Tatiana were overseeing committees having to do with the war. And of course, they weren't fans because of the whole public aspect. Like Alexandra, they weren't all that comfortable with such front and center, all eyes on them appearances. As for the committees... They were the Supreme Council for the Care of Soldiers' Families of the Wounded and Dead, which Alexandra was in charge of with Olga as the VP, and Her Imperial Highness Grand Duchess Tatiana Nikolaevna's Committee for the Temporary Relief of Those Suffering Deprivation in Wartime. That is a mouthful. Whew! As you can tell by the name, Tatiana was the one heading this committee. Funny thing is, even when Alexandra was trying to do the right thing, she just 
couldn't seem to do anything right. Since it was wartime, she decided that photos with her and her girls had to be plain. No razzle-dazzle, no bling, no expensive dresses, nothing. She and the big pair were dressed in their nurses' uniforms, while the little pair were dressed in plain dresses. See? The Imperial family is down to earth. They understand that when the going gets tough, the tough tighten the purse strings. So some people thought this was great. The Empress wasn't a let-them-eat-cake kind of lady. She gets it. Just as many people, though, if not more, thought this was a terrible idea. The Imperial family always had to look Imperial in their frame of mind. End of story. If the royals looked just like everybody else, what special sauce did they end up bringing to the table? As we mentioned in a previous episode, to Russians, the Tsar and his family were so much closer to God in heaven than any other. As for the lifestyles of the rich and snotty, the nobles looked down their noses at Alexandra and the girls, wearing plain, average, everyday Russian people clothing. Oh, how ghastly. They hated anything and everything Alexandra was up to. Nursing, lack of baubles, anything that seemed common or non-royal. Even some of the soldiers felt that way. But even more of them loved that the imperial ladies were looking after them. Not just because it was the royal family showing that they cared about what happened to their people, but because of how they looked after the wounded. Because they weren't just showing or play-acting. Alexandra and her girls truly did care. They were kind, gentle, attentive, and always ready to lend a hand or spend time with the wounded to comfort or distract them. It must have been a shock, all right, to wake up in the hospital with the empress of all the Russias standing over them, taking care of their injuries. And even though the little pair didn't get to become nurses, they still spent time with the soldiers, making them laugh, chatting with them. Olga even played the piano for the soldiers, and everyone would join in and sing. So here again, we're going to mention Downton Abbey. If you watched it, the Crawley sisters take part in helping the wounded soldiers, more so Edith and Sybil. But basically, picture three Sybils, this is including Alexandra, and two Ediths, and you kind of have a clearer picture as to what Alexandra and the girls were up to. During their time as nurses, Tatiana and Olga had a few crushes and flirtations with the soldiers. Ooh. They even grew attached to some of them, especially Olga. They went on walks with the young gentlemen, talked, and looked at photo albums together. Was it love? maybe. Hard to say since it was never really meant to be. At the end of the day, the men were soldiers and the girls were still grand duchesses. When it comes to the actual war effort, Russia was severely lacking in supplies. This included weapons as well as clothing and boots for the men. You know, the essentials. This meant a lot of soldiers walked around without shoes on their feet. Oh, and just as they gained ground against one enemy, they lost it fighting another. In a matter of days, the Germans had taken out 250,000 Russian soldiers. On the other hand, the Russians were able to push the Austrians back. World War I was the war of gaining and losing ground. It went hand in hand. So since the Russian army was experiencing a lack of guns problem, there were some stipulations put into place. One of them was, obviously, not firing at all. The Russians were being shot at, but they weren't allowed to fire back. Made for a lot of happy men were absolutely positive about this. It's easy to place the blame at Nicholas's feet for this. He was the czar after all, Mr. In Charge of Everything. But this time around, it really wasn't his fault. He had no idea about the shortages. He had reports coming in telling him that everything was just fine. He could have looked into it some more, absolutely. But how was he supposed to know that he was being lied to? I mean, it's difficult also to say that had he known, would he have done something different or actually fixed it? Who knows? But since he didn't know, 
you know, that's all we can go on. We can speculate all that we want. But at this point, Nicholas has no clue. But, I mean, if you think about it, actually, for a second, he loved the military. That's true. He was very much a military man. So I feel like he would have, if he had known, tried to make the necessary... Arrangements? Yeah. Okay. Probably would have been like, okay, cool, we're gonna take this train back, maybe, and make sure the supplies get to the men, because it's also, he wanted to win this war. Right. You can't win it if your men are, you know, barefoot and gunless or bulletless. Right. That's true. Um, But in terms of lying, so, you know, his officers, generals, whoever, they even lied straight to his face when he went to check out everything to make sure that, you know, everything was kosher. They dressed up the men, put them all in boots, made sure they, you know, it all looked spick and span. They all had guns with bullets inside of them. Didn't it cross their minds, you know, that the czar should know what the actual hell was going on? Guess not, for whatever reason. So in May of 1915, the German-Austrian forces ended up taking Russian Poland and all the ground Russia kept from Austria after the war started. This became known as the Great Retreat, and it lasted until September 1915, only a year in, and people were already pissed about the war and the lack of victories that they were experiencing. Men were being cut down left and right. Thousands were deserting. Whatever happy-go-lucky, rah-rah, Russian patriotic feelings people had in August 1914 were pretty much gone. A deep-seated hatred started to take hold, partly having to do with the Tsar, mostly having to do with Germany. And who was the closest German that they could direct all their hatred at? Alexandra, of course. Which is funny, because Alexandra was very much Russia for the win. She was doing her best to help the Russian war effort. She didn't want anything to do with Cousin Wilhelm. But people either couldn't see it or didn't want to see it. Who knows? She was a scapegoat. You know, they thought she was a spy. She was feeding information to the Germans so Germany could beat Russia. Interesting. Absolutely ridiculous. But okay. In 1915, Grand Duke Nicholas, also known as Nikolasha, was fired from his position by the Tsar. He was the guy heading up battlefield operations. The war was in the toilet. Natural next step? Nicholas himself heads up the war effort. His advisors said, don't do it. Just don't do it. People were already mad about the war. If Nicholas took charge, they could put all the blame at his feet. Any losses and defeats, all the bad shit... Nicholas's fault. That's it. But Nicholas thought that he'd be a beacon of shining light and inspiration. Ah! The Tsar's close to the fighting. We will fight harder for the Tsar sort of thing. Eh. So off he went to Safka, leaving Alexandra in charge of things while he was away. Interesting decision. She was super supportive of his decision, and even though she had never been in charge of the country, she figured she'd be just fine. Wrong. But okay. After all, she had the one, the only... Rasputin to help her out. And who needs anyone else when you've got Rasputin, obviously. My god, call a lifeline. Call a lifeline. No, I think you mean call a Rasputin. No, call a different lifeline. (laughs) (laughs) Call Wilhelm, do something. I don't know, that would have been, I think, even worse. (laughs) Alright, so Nicholas should have given her a list of things she could do, which would be so much shorter than the things she couldn't. Instead, Alexandra had full reign firing ministers left and right because Rasputin wasn't a fan of theirs, and since they weren't fans of Rasputin, eh, bye! And then she replaced them with incompetent assholes who couldn't find the doorknob on a door. Why? Because they were doormats. Meanwhile, at Stavka, Nicholas was living it up in a mansion far from the closest fighting. It sort of looks like his presence was more about him being present since he kept to an interesting routine. Wake up! 
go to work at 10 a.m., listen to the latest and greatest on the war, eat some lunch, take a walk, maybe a nap, and take a look at the troops. Very consistent. Then he'd work a bit more, have his dinner, which was fit for a czar, of course. Okay, no skimping on the war. And then he'd relax with the movie or some music. All in all, not a bad day, right? Nicholas didn't make a lot of important decisions when it came to the fighting. And just like you'd imagine, Nicholas being at Stavka didn't change a damn thing. Russia was still losing, soldiers were dying, and there still weren't enough boots and guns to go around. Like many of the men at war, Nicholas missed his wife and kids. Unlike the other men, Alexei actually came to live with Nicholas at Stavka. Nicholas wanted his boy with him, and Alexei was more than happy to spend time with his dad. It broke Alexandra's heart to part with him, but part with him she did. Since a lot of people weren't fans of Rasputin, Nicholas had police looking after him and his apartment. Of course, they wrote down all the goings-on at Rasputin's place, all the things he did, and they saw a lot. Inappropriate relations with women, and lots and lots of drinking. When the cops took all their information to Alexandra, she threw it away. Okay? And that, maybe, might have been the end of it. Maybe. If that information didn't end up becoming public knowledge. Since it did, most people were now sporting anti-Rasputin feelings, and Alexandra's continued support for him really ticked people off. She's got all this evidence that Rasputin's not worth a grain of salt, and still she supports him? Woman's off her rocker. So a bunch of guys got together and decided that Rasputin had to go. These reports, plus the fact that Rasputin was giving advice on how to govern, and that said advice was being taken and acted upon, spelled Rasputin's doom. Finally. That aside. Add to this the fact that thousands of soldiers were dying on the front, people were losing faith in the war and the Tsar. In people's minds, quite a bit of Russia's woes were the fault of Alexandra and Rasputin. If it weren't for them, things wouldn't be so bad. Even when Ella, Alexandra's own sister, came to knock some sense into her, Alexandra wouldn't listen. Kick Rasputin out the door? Not even a thought in her mind. So Romanov family members started plotting. All the tense, revolutionary feelings had them anxious. Both Alexandra and Rasputin had to go. Though, you know, for Alexandra, you know, not the same way. They figured she had to leave Russia. Never to return. Nicholas had to put her aside. And whether she left to live somewhere else, spend her life in a convent, or worse, the family didn't care. They wanted her gone. Rasputin, though, it was time for Rasputin to take a dirt nap. But a family coup wasn't about to take place. So, the end of Rasputin it was. The conspirators were Vladimir Pyrishkevich, Prince Felix Yusupov, the husband of Irina, Nicholas's niece, Nicholas's cousin, Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, Army Doctor Stanislas Lazover, and Army Officer Sergei Sukotin. On December 29, 1916, Rasputin came over to Prince Yusupov's palace, expecting to get chummy with Felix's wife Irina, who he had never met before. He had no idea what was in store for him that night. Rasputin chowed down on some wine and cakes, which had a special ingredient. Cyanide. Like magic. Rasputin was just fine, unfortunately. Like a cockroach, I think you mean. Prince Felix was freaking out. What now? Solution? Shoot him. Duh. He used Grand Duke Dimitri's gun to do it, because why use your own? I don't think he had a gun on him. So he just... Yeah, so, like, Dimitri had his gun, and he basically was like, okay, thanks, and then took his gun. All right, fine. He did what he had. Got it. But regardless, he went back and put a bullet in Rasputin's back. Huzzah! He's dead! Except no. 
Oops, on that front, when his co-conspirators went off to get something to wrap the body in, Rasputin got up and ran off, almost making it to the palace gate. And then Vladimir, Pirishkevich, thank you, Adrian, you're welcome, ran after him and fired his gun a bunch of times, eventually hitting Rasputin in the shoulder and head. Prince Felix apparently ran out afterward and beat him with a club. Rasputin was then wrapped up tight in a blue curtain and inevitably tossed into the Neva River, which was mostly frozen over at this point. And so ends Rasputin. After three days, the cops got his body out of the river. Since he wasn't wrapped in tight anymore, people wondered, was he still somehow alive when he went into the river? Uh, no. The autopsy revealed that Rasputin was very much dead when he went into the water. Interestingly enough, there was no sign of the cyanide that was put in the cakes. So was it even really there to begin with? In any case, people were celebrating Rasputin's death like no other. We're totally with him. One of the only people heartbroken by his death was Alexandra, of course. The children were also upset since he'd been in their lives since they were very little. As for Rasputin's murderers, Grand Duke Dmitri had to go to war, and Prince Felix was sent to one of his estates. Exiled. Pishkevich. Thank you. Escaped unscathed. Sorry, guys, I sound like Sean Connery when I try that name. It's awful. He escaped unscathed since his popularity had soared within the Duma after the murder. So by the time 1917 rolled in, the people of Russia were at the end of their tether. Shortages abounded of pretty much everything. Bread, sugar, butter, meat, fuel. They had to wait in unbelievably long lines to buy these items. And when people could buy what they needed, they were paying through the nose. You know, and sometimes when they stood in these long lines and they got to the front and they went, oh, I'm sorry, we're out. Please try again tomorrow. So people were losing their jobs, unable to bring money home. The average Russian was suffering, but the Russian aristocracy and the imperial family were still living it up. The rich and powerful didn't know what it was like to go without food or warmth or a bed to sleep on. The perfect storm was brewing in Russia, but Nicholas and Alexandra still, okay, still couldn't see it. Nicholas did leave Savka for Alexander Palace when Rasputin was murdered because he was coming for the funeral for Rasputin. And then he stayed there instead of heading back to Savka. And yet, even though Nicholas was back, things weren't getting any better. The mood of the people was becoming even darker. The powder keg was about to be lit. The people were edging closer and closer to revolution. You know, people were always thinking about the war in that they wanted it to be over and done with. It's at this point that even the members of the Duma started talking about the end of Nicholas's reign. They didn't want him dead, but they also didn't want him on the throne. So who takes his place? Uncle Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich. He turned it down. The entire thought of it. So who's next? Well, Alexei was Nicholas's son and heir, so the next natural choice. Boom! They figured it out. Alexei would rule, and the Duma ministers would basically rule for him. Once again, some of Nicholas's own family were pleading with him to get his shit together, including Sandro, his cousin, friend, and brother-in-law. Things were bad. People are pissed. Things are heading in a really shitty direction. Things have to change. Put new people in place in the government. Cut this off at the knees. Alas, no dice. Remember that powder keg we mentioned? The time had finally come to light the fuse. By the end of February 1917, Nicholas was back at Stavka and the unrest was coming to a head in St. Petersburg, which had actually been changed to Petrograd during the war to sound less German. People were striking again, stealing, burning things, and even killing cops. 
At the same time, Olga, Tatiana, and Alexei had all come down with measles, running temperatures of 102 degrees and higher. Dr. Botkin, the court physician, took up residence in the palace so he could be closer while Alexandra took to nursing her children herself. Their health was that bad. She didn't know how bad things had become until March 12th, when she was told that she and her kids were in the line of fire. They needed to run. The revolution was in full swing, and even soldiers had joined the revolt. But she wouldn't move the children. They were too sick. She worried it would make them worse. On some level, she was probably correct. But in any case, Nicholas was on his way back. Okay, they'd gotten word. Nicholas was on his way home. So they weren't going anywhere. Sadly, this might have been the one and only chance they had to make it out of Russia alive. Realistically, it was probably too late to move, since the revolutionaries had taken control of the railroads. So, could they really have gotten far? Difficult to say. You know, if they had been caught by the revolutionaries, that would have been a thousand times worse. So the next day, March 13th, soldiers came to Tsarskaya Silo, but not to help Alexandra. They came to destroy her. And Alexei. Luckily, 1,500 men from their beloved Standart, remember their cruise ship, had also come to Tsarskaya Silo. These men were still loyal to the imperial family. Unfortunately, most of the other imperial guards and soldiers were now on the side of the revolution. They had deserted their posts, so at least they weren't wandering around the grounds anymore. The family's luck didn't last long. Just as Anastasia was falling ill with measles, the revolutionary soldiers had made their way to Alexander Palace. Eventually, Alexandra learned that the Imperial train carrying Nicholas back home had been stopped. To make matters even worse, those heroic sailors who showed up to stand guard also left. The dominoes started to fall. The palace staff started fleeing as well, knowing that the Imperial star had fallen. I mean, it's understandable. They didn't want to be caught on the wrong side of the revolution. Okay, and soon enough, their positions would also become obsolete. The revolutionaries had shut down the electricity and the water supply to the house. Whatever servants and staff stayed did so out of loyalty. For Alexandra, the lack of electricity was a true hardship, and it wasn't because she couldn't function without things being easy, but it was because of her health. Without the elevator, she had to walk up and down the stairs, in pain as she was. Her children were still sick, so she had to keep moving between her rooms and theirs. Meanwhile, Nicholas was stopped at Pskov, and he was smacked in the face with the truth. People weren't just pissed anymore. They'd reached their breaking point. He figured he'd finally make those concessions, you know, that he should have made before. No, friend. It was way too late for that. So he asked for advice from his generals, and they all pretty much said the same thing. Abdication was the only way to save Russia and even himself. Which is exactly what he did. At first, he abdicated with the intention of having Alexei succeed him. But then he had a great big think about it and decided he couldn't subject his son, his poor hemophiliac Alexei, to the Tsardom, especially at his young age. Instead, his brother Mikhail would be the next Tsar. We'll say this. It wasn't an easy decision for Nicholas. Whatever he was, you know, whatever he'd done, which were some really shitty things, he did have a deep love for Russia. Didn't understand the people at all. Not a bit but loved the land he was born to rule. So then why'd he give it up? It could have been because he saw there was no other choice, so to save the land he loved and win the war, he stepped down. Another theory is that he was ready to be done with it all and live out the rest of his life with his family, without the responsibility forced on his shoulders due to an accident of birth. As for the people, they were thrilled 
that the Tsar Nicholas was no more. But wait, another Tsar? Mikhail? When that was announced outside the headquarters of the newly minted provisional government, the people were pissed. It's not that they wanted a new Tsar. They didn't want one at all. They started shouting things like, down with the dynasty and long live the republic. Then, the mob took to destroying anything that had to do with the Romanovs and the Tsar. They even went into the Winter Palace and cut up the portrait of Nicholas. This, plus angry soldiers, marching through the streets, meant one thing. There could not be another Tsar. Mikhail, after speaking with Kerensky and Rodzianko, decided to abdicate as well. If he became Tsar, there would be more bloodshed, perhaps even his own. The Romanov dynasty was at an end. Russia's monarchy was no more. For the people, this meant it was time to celebrate. Red, and only red, became the new favorite color. People were singing in the streets. Side note, all of this happened in Petrograd. One city was responsible for an entire country's revolt, and they succeeded. Once people in other cities found out, they were just as thrilled. Even the soldiers fighting in the war were ready to break out the champagne bottles, and then many of them just up and left, ready to be done with the fighting. Alexandra found out that Nicholas had abdicated a day after the fact. Nicholas's uncle, the Grand Duke Paul, was the one to share the news. She was absolutely devastated. So how the rest of the world take the Russian Revolution, especially his own family? Well, King George V, his cousin, was quite meh about it. As a king, realistically, the Russian monarchy was done. Nothing George said or did could change that fact. As Nicholas's cousin, though, he was upset for Nikki and the loss of his throne. He did try to send a message to Nicholas sympathizing with him, but the new Russian government wouldn't pass it on. George did not try to rescind it. So the British government was still fighting a war, right? This is all politics. They needed the new provisional government's support and cooperation. Kaiser Wilhelm was quite blah about it all, to be honest. Oh, well. King Alfonso XIII of Spain was very concerned and supported Nicholas and Alexandra, who was his cousin by marriage. Okay, this is the monarch of all the monarchs in Europe who was the furthest removed from Nicholas and Alexandra. He had never met them. He wasn't even related to them by blood, but his concern was the greatest. Like Nicholas and Alexandra, the threat of revolution was running rampant in Spain. Unlike the Russian royals, it hadn't reached that point yet, and Alfonso still had his throne. King Christian of Denmark was extremely worried by all this and even wanted his ambassador to find out what would happen to the royal family after the abdication. He wanted them out of Russia. After Nicholas abdicated, he didn't head straight home. Weird, right? Nicholas, the family man, you think he wanted to be surrounded by his wife and kids. Instead, Nicholas wanted to go back to Stavka and say goodbye to the army and the officers who acted as his advisors. One of his men wanted him to run. And this might have been the best time to do it. But leave Russia? No way. Nicholas wasn't going to leave his home, and honestly, he wouldn't go anywhere without his family. With that settled, Nicholas wrote a list of his four must-haves. He gets to go to Sarskaya Silo with his entourage. They all get to stay there, safe as houses, until the kids are better. Then everyone gets to leave Russia via Murmansk. And then everyone comes back and lives in the Crimea at Lavadia Palace once the war's over. Not unreasonable as far as demands go, and honestly, the provisional government wasn't really against it. They did want to get the Romanovs out of the country to keep them alive, but the government wanted them out forever. There could literally be no return. This wasn't just to keep them alive, but to make sure a civil war didn't erupt. The revolutionaries versus the counter-revolutionaries. With the Romanovs outside of Russia, with no possibility of return, 
Maybe it could stop any loyalists from rising up. Nicholas's mother, Maria Fyodorovna, came to Stavka to see Nicholas. She spent three days with him, talking, walking, eating. It was mother-son time. When Maria and Nicholas left Stavka, it was the last time they ever saw each other. On top of the abdication, there was some good news, and then more bad news. Olga, Tatiana, and Alexei were feeling better. But Anastasia had a fever, and Maria had also caught the measles. Unlike her siblings, Maria also developed complications from pneumonia. Quite a few people were calling to have the Tsar locked away in a prison or tried and executed, but Kerensky was adamant that the family be kept safe. The provisional government was in charge of the Romanovs, keeping them alive and unharmed. On March 21st, Nicholas finally began the journey back to Tsarskaya Silo. He wasn't just a deposed ruler at this point, going home to the family. He was the former Tsar, under arrest and in the custody of the provisional government. The same day, Alexandra was told that she and her children were under house arrest. To protect them, of course. We're not being sarcastic here, actually. Now, it was also to show people that the monarchy was really at an end. Now the time had come for Alexandra to explain to her kids that their father was no longer the Tsar, she no longer the Tsaritsa. Alexei would never be Tsar, and the girls were now grand duchesses in memory only. Their lives would be different, their future uncertain. The remaining palace staff and nobles were told to hightail it out of the Alexander Palace. If they didn't, they'd be stuck there with the family until who knew when. Most people left, but almost 100 people stayed, and that's including Dr. Botkin and Pierre Gilliard, one of the kids' tutors. On March 22nd, Nicholas was finally home. Some of the servants refused to refer to the imperial family using anything but their royal titles, and the butler was one of them. The family was over the moon excited to be back together, and it's here, with his wife and his children, that Nicholas finally let loose his grief over the abdication. The family truly became prisoners within their own home. They were basically locked into the palace with only two entrances left open. Guards were posted to watch them, all their letters were searched, and they weren't allowed to use the phone or telegraph to communicate with the outside world. Grief aside, Nicholas and the kids settled into new routines, you know, as you normally would. And this is really, honestly, the life Nicholas should have lived. One where he was just a dad and a husband, spending quality time with the kids. That's, he was a shitty czar. There's no other way to phrase it, but he was an excellent father. You can't take that away from him. He loved his kids to death, and they loved him. Since he wasn't someone who sat still, he found new things to do. Taking walks, cutting up wood, breaking up ice. Without his royal duties, Nicholas finally, truly felt free. Alexandra, on the other hand, wilted at the nothingness before her. She aged faster than she should have, and to be honest, she was never healthy again. Not even a little bit. She was basically confined to bed or a wheelchair for the rest of her life, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so gray hair and all, just most people, when they commented on seeing her after this point, all they could say was how old she looked and how sick she looked. So some things didn't change. They still ate the same foods, drank wine, got dressed up, and had staff waiting on them. But they were only allowed to spend time in certain areas of the palace where before they had free reign and could only go outside for a certain amount of time each day. No more growing where they pleased when they pleased. Even when the family could go outside, people seemed to be waiting night and day for them to appear so they could yell at them and tell them what they really thought about the family. I mean, they were complaining before about not having jobs, I guess not having jobs still, so you just wait the fence and spew hatred. Got nothing better to do. Yeah. So the soldiers were even worse, since they could actually harm the family if they really wanted. They didn't, 
but they did tow the line. They used their bayonets to nudge Nicholas in his back. One soldier caused Nicholas to go over the handlebars of his bicycle. Luckily, he wasn't hurt. Well, luckily, depending on who you are, I guess. So the soldiers would poke fun at the girls, take Alexei's toys, and even said inappropriate things about Alexandra. And knew he wasn't behind her back. She heard it all. Even though it upset them and hurt the children's feelings, major kudos to the family. They never lashed out. They never clapped back with something rude. They bore it with dignity and kept on trudging. And then, on April 16th, the jackass returned to Russia. And by that, I mean Vladimir Lenin. And this time, instead of sneaking into the country, he was a welcome face. And he immediately got to work making speeches about how the provisional government was an epic failure and the war Russia was still fighting wasn't a war they should be fighting, the Bolsheviks were behind him, and most of the Mensheviks weren't. And it was the Mensheviks that made up most of the people in the Petrograd Soviet, which was working alongside the provisional government. But Lenin wanted the provisional government gone, so off he went giving speeches left and right, garnering support and whipping people up into a frenzy. He capitalized on the fact that things weren't any better than they were under the Tsar. More and more people were identifying with Lenin and his ideologies. Meanwhile, at the Alexander Palace, removed from Lenin and the continued unrest, Nicholas and the kids decided to plant a garden together. And guess who ended up helping them? The soldiers guarding them. Weird turn of events, right? But these men had been with the family for a few months now watching them and how they interacted with each other, their lack of reaction to the soldiers and their hatred, and more importantly, they didn't complain throughout any of it. Lightbulb moment. The Romanovs are a family. They're people, just like everyone else. So they helped plant the garden and got to know Nicholas and the children, chatted with them. So what did they really hate? The former regime and all it represented or Nicholas himself? Maybe a bit of both, but they were starting to hate Nicholas a whole lot less. So Nicholas is at home, Lenin is on the loose, and things are still neither here nor there for the Romanovs. The provisional government still couldn't figure out what to do with the family, where to send them, or who would take them. England kept going back and forth about whether or not to offer Nicholas and his family safety in Great Britain. The British ambassador kept sending reports to London asking when the Romanov family would be taken out of Russia. He was worried about the family's fate. He was one of the people who stressed about it the most, actually, on a constant campaign to get Britain to offer asylum. And when Britain wouldn't, he campaigned to get them anywhere that would mean they were safe. The people of Britain, on the other hand, were not thrilled. They didn't want the Tsar and his family on British soil, and they especially didn't want Alexandra, the German, in Britain. With all that negative sentiment, George V was anxious that bringing his family to Britain would cause unrest, just like in Russia. Finally, the British government settled on yes, the Romanovs could come and live in England. And just as quickly as the offer came, it was taken back. When France was asked if it would take the Romanovs, the country came back with a very hard pass. It wasn't their problem, and they really didn't care what happened to the imperial family. To be honest, most countries weren't willing to take them in. Why? The revolution. They were removed from power, and there was a war on. No one wanted to upset the balance during the war or be seen colluding with the enemy. Barf. Stop it. Taking in the Romanovs at this point was about preserving life. Nothing else. But no, the rulers of Europe played politics instead. Here's the funny thing. If the Romanovs' allies, you know, their blood relatives, had truly wanted to get them out of Russia, they might have actually been able to. Each country was inquiring on their own instead of forming a network and working together. Fuck the war. These were their kin. These were children's 
lives. Everything was at stake. So the Danish royal family actually came to this conclusion on their own. So high five, thumbs up. They went to the Germans. If the Tsar and his family were taken from Russia to Denmark on a British ship, will you keep your submarines from attacking that ship? The ship will hoist a white flag. The Germans agreed. Sure, of course. No ship would be attacked with the Russian royal family on board it. But nothing came of this. For a split second, there was the thought that Gustav, king of Sweden, would help out and allow the Romanov family into his country. But nothing ever came of that either. Frankly, no one knows what Gustav wanted to do. The man had his own issues to deal with. He basically had one foot on a ship ready to get the hell out of Dodge because his throne was as secure as Nicholas's had been. A lot of unhappy people make for a very unstable political climate. So there was going to be zero help on that front. Then there was cousin Kaiser Wilhelm. He wasn't going to do anything either, but for a very different reason. He claimed that any maneuvering would look like he was meddling in Russian politics. He couldn't have that, so nothing directly could be done by him. The Romanovs were family, but even that wasn't going to be enough to force his hand. Sorry, guys. Basically, you're on your own. King Alfonso of Spain, on the other hand, was still hoping some deal could be reached. But at this point, it really came down to whether or not the provisional government was willing to release the family to seek asylum elsewhere. And the answer is, not really. Not anymore. Kerensky was at a loss. What the hell was he supposed to do with the imperial family? Good question, sir. The only thing he could think of was moving them as far away from Petrograd as he could. Preferably someplace where the people weren't openly calling for the Tsar's head. So in July of 1917, Russia decided it was time to make the first move in the war, rather than constantly being on the defensive. The target? Austrians! The provisional government figured that with the help of the U.S., who had just entered the war, they'd finally beat Germany. Super unfortunate, considering it completely backfired. Austria and Germany were winning, and lots of Russians died. Unsurprisingly, the people, including sailors, took to the streets. With guns. And where were they going? To Lenin's house. And what did they want? Permission to take down the government. And did Lenin give it? Absolutely not. Actually, Lenin didn't even want to talk to the people at his front door. I mean, we don't blame him. Who would want to open their door to find thousands and thousands of people with weapons waiting for orders on how to topple the government? A proper aspiring dictator, that's who. But Lenin wasn't there yet. Instead, after being bugged enough, Lenin came out and said the equivalent of Soviets are awesome. In that kind of tone, like meh. In his most monotonous voice. Way to kill a movement, Lenin. That definitely wasn't what the people were waiting for or expecting. After that disappointment, it was time to head home. As the people walked off, soldiers following the orders of the provisional government started shooting at them, injuring or killing hundreds. And this is the type of shit they hated Nicholas for. So then they decided to do it themselves. Pot, meat, kettle. But it's different when they do it. Because their name is a Nicholas. I got it. So this really lit a fire under Kerensky. He needed to move the family, and he needed to move them like yesterday. Even though the family wanted to relocate to the Crimea, that wasn't going to happen. Too many complications stood between them and getting to the Crimea safely, starting with angry and ending with people. Kerensky couldn't ensure their safety that way. Instead, he picked a lovely, middle-of-nowhere, backward town called Tobolsk. Who needs a palace when you can have a rickety old manor house? But hey, at least the people there like them. Kerensky kept this all under wraps. He trusted very few with the travel plans, and he was super sneaky about the whole thing. He'd be an idiot to think he'd be able to move the family without revolutionaries stopping the train. 
Think of the Imperial family as part of the FBI's most wanted. Everyone would be looking for them. So, Kaninsky devised a way to move them to Dabolsk in plain sight. He put up a sign and Japanese flags that made it appear so the train was part of the Japanese Red Cross. Well done. Well played, sir. With that sorted, there was only one thing left to do. Pack. And that wasn't going to be easy. How do you decide what to take with you when you know you'll probably never return? What toys, jewels, clothes, books, extravagant knickknacks, etc. make the cut? Let's take a look at what the Imperial family chose. For Nicholas, it was the letters Alexandra wrote to him and his diaries. Alexandra went through her clothing. She donated the majority of her clothes to war victims. Then, as would be expected of the woman who surrounded herself with family photos wherever she went, she packed them up alongside some religious books and icons. She was ready to go. Then, of course, there were the children. Aside from the essentials, such as clothing, they also made sure to pack their books, photo albums, arts and crafts supplies, and their brownie box cameras. They loved them. Alexei made sure to grab his tin soldiers, because what little boy is going to leave those behind? A chessboard, and his toy gun. Considering how much he loved to play with it, it would have been surprising if he'd left it behind. All in all, yeah, they were the Imperial family. But guys, they were just people. We feel like that's constantly overlooked. Everyone always remembers the Imperial part, not so much the family part. Remember, a mother, a father, children... Seriously, let that sink in. While they packed the things they valued most, there were also items considered as necessary. You know, the electroshock machine Dr. Botkin used on Alexei's legs, medicines, Alexandra's nursing tools, and the children's army cots and bedding. Essentials packed? Check. Non-essentials packed? You bet your bottom dollar. These included the fine china, Turkish rugs, velvet pillows, cologne, bathing oils, and much more. And let's take a second to talk about the entourage following them to Tobolsk. A couple of valets, a handful of chambermaids, ten footmen, three cooks, because two obviously wasn't enough, four assistant cooks to help the three cooks in case they somehow let the borscht boil too long, a clerk, nurse, doctor, barber, butler, wine steward. Can we get one of those? Two spaniels and a bulldog. Not mentioned are the candlestick maker, the cobbler, and the baker. Okay, those last three are jokes, but seriously. There were also courtiers who were going with, and it was all by choice. But would you be surprised, though, if they actually did have their own personal cobbler, baker, and candlestick maker? Probably not. So August 13, 1917, was the last day the Romanovs were at Tsarskaya Silo. It was a bittersweet day. The kids got to run around the palace one last time while the last of the packing was finished. But even after all of that, with everyone roaring and ready to go at five in the evening, the train never came. At three in the morning, Kerensky made a call. Apparently, there had been some kind of strike, but that wasn't going to stop them moving the imperial family. After some serious internal crying, probably, and some begging on Kedinsky's part, the cars finally arrived to transport the family to the trains. This was 5.15 in the morning, 12 hours after the family was packed and waiting. They piled into the car and took one last look at Tsarskaya Silo. The palace had been their home all that time, and they were leaving it for the last time never to return. It wasn't until they were on the train that the Romanovs were told where they were going. All right, guys, now we're off to Siberia. After a week of constant travel, the family passed Pokrovskaya, the village Rasputin lived in, before finally arriving in Tobolsk. But they weren't going to be moving into their new home just yet. It was, uh, lacking? Empty? Dirty? 
not even remotely fit for a king or a former one in his family. I don't know that it was really fit for any family at this point. Yeah, no, it was a pigsty. While the house was being cleaned and furnished, the Romanovs had to stay aboard the Rus, the steamer that had carried them the last 200 miles of their trip. But it wasn't all bad. They were able to walk along the river whenever they were allowed off the ship, and at least there was lots of fresh air. Now let's talk about this so-called mansion. It had 14 rooms. Sounds big, right? Maybe, if it was for a smaller party. But with the family and all the people accompanying them, it would be impossible to fit them all in. So most of the servants were moved across the street. The house was known as the Governor's Mansion, or Freedom House, but there was very little freedom to have. Before the suitcases could even be unpacked, a huge fence was built around the property. The family was under constant watch. Uh, we mean guard. For their safety, of course. At least the people of Tobolsk were lovely. They bowed and took their caps off, even kneeled if they caught sight of Nicholas. Sometimes there was even a huge crowd when the girls came out on the balcony. But the guards didn't like that at all. They made sure to use their guns as a means of pushing people back and away. Thankfully, that didn't deter people too much. The shopkeepers, farmers, and nuns sent food and desserts to the family. It was all very sweet. So the imperial family is locked up in this mansion, closed off from the world, and occasionally stuffing their faces with bonbons given to them by the locals. So what did they do for fun? Chopped wood, because exercise. They took photos, played games, knit, read, and sometimes sat on the greenhouse roof where Nicholas built the family a little getaway. And that's how they spent their time for the next seven months until October 1917, when Sidney Gibbs, one of the family tutors, showed up in Tobolsk after finally receiving permission to join the family. It was a wonderful reunion, okay? The family was happy to have him there. He was happy to see them. But while Nicholas looked fit as a fiddle due to all the outdoor activities, Alexandra and the kids weren't as fortunate. Gibbs couldn't believe how much Alexandra had aged. She was so thin and haggard looking. Then there was Olga and Tatiana, who'd lost so much weight and pulled into themselves. Luckily, Maria was still the sweetheart she was known to be. Even Anastasia remained her mischievous self. She was still the one making the family laugh, which was necessary considering their circumstances. Alexei, on the other hand, listened to no one. He did what he wanted and when, ignoring orders that he was given. Meanwhile, there was trouble with the government. What else was new? The provisional government was falling apart, and the Bolsheviks were readying to take control. Kedinsky was out of town trying to build an army to beat back the Bolsheviks, so the only troops the government had on hand were some untrained cadets and a unit of women. Like Nicholas, the government wanted to arrest Lenin. The Bolsheviks barely had to do anything to defeat these troops. They fired one blank at the Winter Palace, and the provisional government's seriously lacking army surrendered. Just a couple hours later, the ministers also surrendered to the Bolsheviks after two more shots were fired at the palace. In the early hours of November 8, 1917, the Bolsheviks took power. This change in power was known as the October Revolution. Why, if it happened in November? Because Russia was still using the old-style Julian calendar, which was a few weeks behind the Gregorian calendar, which is pretty much what the rest of the world was already using. The Russians didn't switch to the Gregorian calendar until 1918. Nicholas didn't learn about the Soviets taking power until many weeks later. For the first time since his abdication, Nicholas regretted his decision. By giving up the throne, he thought he was doing what was best for Russia. But, after learning the news, he thought he'd essentially handed the power over to the Soviets. The Romanovs didn't feel the effects of the regime change until the early months of 1918. 
So after a snowfall in January, the family, save for Alexandra, of course, got together to create a huge snow mountain. And they had some help from the servants, and even some of the guards joined in. The snow mountain was about as high as the fence, and everyone had an absolute blast. Then in February, the guards were changed out. Die-hard revolutionaries were switched in. When they were marching into town, the family climbed on top of the snow mountain to see everything. You know, natural, considering there's a fucking fence. So the new guards got rid of the mountain. Apparently, by climbing on it, the family was basically painting target signs on their foreheads. And no way were the guards going to be responsible for them getting killed. So bye-bye, Snow Mountain. It was fun while it lasted. As if destroying the kids' outside entertainment wasn't bad enough, the family had their butter, sugar, coffee, and eggs taken from them. Soldiers' rations, it was called. Highway robbery, I call it. I would have killed anyone who tried to take my coffee away, let's be honest. This is true. Renee is quite rabid when it comes to her coffee. So, after this, their monthly allowance was also lowered. It's not one of those, aw, this poor family, they had less money to spend, boo. As a result of this budget cut, the family was forced to fire ten servants. So it's not, oh no, you know, now... They have 10 less servants to wait hand on foot. No, that's 10 families relying on that income suddenly left with nothing. Nicholas and Alexandra didn't want to let any of them go, but they had to, and it broke their hearts to do it. Now let's talk about the thugs. Uh, sorry, we mean guards. Uh, the guards were assholes. There's no other way to phrase it, honestly. They took pleasure in exerting their power over the Romanovs. They graffitied the swing set, the fence anywhere where the girls could basically see. They wrote foul bullshit that the girls and Alexei shouldn't see. Sometimes Nicholas or Gilliard would be able to get rid of it before the kids could see it, but not always. The guards and their antics fell to the wayside when in March 1918, Alexei was once again sick. So he had a super bad cough that caused a hemorrhage in his groin. And he hadn't had an episode that bad since Spala in 1912. Alexei was in so much pain that he told Alexandra he wanted to die, okay? How much pain does a kid have to be in to just say, Mom, I want to die. I want to die. Let I'm me die. I'm ready for the end. Okay? So the family grieved, Alexandra especially, but Alexei was showing signs of improvement by April 19th. Right before Alexei got sick, Lenin got news about a group loyal to the imperial family, calling themselves the White Army, that they were marching toward Moscow. In return, the Bolsheviks created the Red Army, so that's where the White and Red Army comes into play. Lenin, wanting to put an end to the Civil War in the works, tried to make peace with Germany ASAP. Now, why would that help? Because when Lenin took power, he promised the Russian people their involvement in the war would end. He was worried that if he didn't bring about peace, he'd be removed from power. I just want to take a minute to be like, this is the most ironic thing ever, considering... When the war was on, you know, when they were fighting under Nicholas, they were all like, ah, boo, bad Germans, we hate Germans. And then they go and make peace with these people that they supposedly hate and can't stand. So it's like, they want to have their cake and eat it too, kind of thing. They can't do that though. Yeah. So on March 3rd, 1918, in the city of Brest-Litovsk, Lenin's delegation made a deal. They handed over Poland, Finland, Ukraine, the Baltic states... In the Crimea, so Russia could pull out of World War I and wash their hands of the whole affair. So they, they basically handed over a huge chunk of Russia and her industry to the Germans, which again is what they were fucking pissed about when Nicholas was czar, that they were losing ground, 
And here they were just like, oh, you know what? Why don't you just take all this stuff? And our citizens, do you know how many millions of Russian citizens are located in those areas that now they've just handed over to Germany? Like cattle. So, you know, that's interesting. So to put it into perspective for you guys, I think when we were reading, it's like it's one third of the population of Russia. It's a little bit over 50% of their factory. So like that's their economy right there. Hasta la vista. Bye bye money. Yeah, it's very interesting. So when the news reached Nicholas towards the beginning of Alexei's battle with his new hemophilia episode, he switched between a bunch of emotions, and it was mostly anger and sadness. He believed, and rightfully so, that such a deal was basically a death sentence for Russia. Okay, I mean, you could argue that they saved a lot of lives by signing this treaty and handing it over, you know, it ended peacefully, no more Russian soldiers on the front lines dying. But I just can't get over the whole here take our citizens thing. That is just, what do you tell those people? Hey, uh, you're no longer Russian citizens, hasta la vista? I don't know. (laughs) Right? Basically. Anyway, so I got one problem off the docket for the government. Now, the next item to check off was the Romanovs. Some advised Lenin to put Nicholas on on trial or imprison him. There was the worry that the White Army would free him and from there place him back on his throne. No worse for wear. Couldn't have that. So they decided to move the family instead. Again. Commissar Vasily Yakovlev was put in charge of the task. He made it to Tobolsk on April 22, 1918. He didn't expect to find Alexei so sick, so he let Moscow know that moving the whole family was impossible. P.S. He referred to the family as baggage. Nice, right? So Moscow told him to take Nicholas first. Yakovlev was upfront with the family, okay? He was honest. He told them who he was and what he was sent there to do. Nicholas was to be moved to Moscow the next day alone. When Nicholas protested, Yakovlev said he could take whoever he wanted with him. Whatever he decided, though, they were leaving the next day at four in the morning. Eventually, it was decided that Alexandra and Maria would go with Nicholas and that Gilliard, Olga, Tatiana, and Anastasia would look after Alexei. The family spent the rest of the night together, crying and taking comfort in each other's company. The rest of the family was to join Nicholas, Alexandra, and Maria in three weeks. On their way to Moscow, things got a little dicey. The destination was chained from Moscow to Ekaterinburg, a town in the Ural Mountains known for its anti-Tsarist feelings. They hated the imperial family and were pretty much a violent sort. It really doesn't take a genius to realize that's a really bad idea. Yakovlev was anxious for the family and about leaving them there. However, Moscow really didn't care. Hand them over, they said. So, Yakovlev did as he was ordered, but let's note that he did so reluctantly. He still followed his orders, but he wasn't happy about it. When Nicholas, Alexandra, and Maria made it to Ekaterinburg, they wrote to Dubosk. In the letter was a coded message for the girls. Alexandra wrote that their medicines had been checked. That was code for jewelry. Before the family was separated, they created this code so that, if necessary, the girls knew they needed to sew their jewels into their clothes. That's about 19 pounds of jewelry in each of their undergarments. If they were about to get out of Russia, that was their security blanket. The jewels came to about $14 million. Since Alexei wasn't well enough to travel, Moscow sent a new head honcho in the middle of May to look after the family until it was time to move. His name was Nicholas Radinov, and he was a tyrant a power-hungry, perverse tyrant who hated the imperial family like no other. 
So that meant things were going to change. No more closed doors, even the girls' bedroom. They had to wake up early for roll call as if it was some kind of military boot camp. Plus, he threatened the servants when they didn't do as they were told. Sounds like a super fun guy, right? Even with Alexei sick, Vorodinov decided it was, you know, he was healthy enough to leave for Ekaterinburg. However, Alexei wasn't going to complain. All the kids couldn't wait to see their parents and sister again. On May 20th, 1918, the children finally left Tobolsk. On the 23rd, their train arrived in Ekaterinburg. There were a bunch of mixed feelings. Mostly, there were people shouting at the children, spewing hatred, calling for their deaths. Super welcoming. Really awesome to say to young people, right? And unfathomable. These were children, and people wanted them dead. All because an accident of birth meant they were born as grand duchesses instead of peasants. The kids were all watching this from the train, by the way, hearing this, okay? So an engineer from the area also a revolutionary, knew the girls were going to be arriving that day. He went to the train station to catch a glimpse of them. What he saw stuck with him for the rest of his life. Dare I say, haunted him for the rest of his life. Not only did he pity the children, but he felt ashamed. Instead of throwing insults and calling for their deaths, the Russian people should have figured out a way to save the children, himself included, since he just stood by and watched it happen. The girls got off the train and straight into a carriage that would take them to their family. They had to drag their own heavy suitcases. No one would lend a hand. And even when Nagorny tried, remember, Alexei's sailor nanny, he was held back. He wasn't allowed to help them. And one of, like, Tatiana was dragging her heavy suitcase. Okay, she was not in the best of health, considering their captivity, and holding her dog under her arm. And they wouldn't lend a hand. I guess, karmic justice in their minds that this princess was now being treated like a piece of shit. Gibbs and Gilliard weren't allowed to go with them. Pretty much everyone, including courtiers and staff, were kept on the train, aside from Nagorny, probably because he was Alexei's sailor nanny, but we can't know for sure. Outside of the few servants allowed to go with, this was the last glimpse the remaining staff had of Olga, Tatiana, Anastasia, and Alexei. The Pativ house where the family was staying was surrounded by a newly built fence that was as tall as the second-story windows. Although, eventually, the fence was built even higher. The windows were whitewashed, no one could see in or out. The Pativ house, however, had another name. It was also called the House of Special Purpose by the Bolsheviks. Doesn't sound good, does it? There were five rooms on the second floor dedicated to the family and their companions. This included Dr. Bakken... Anna Demidova, who was the maid, Ivan Hritonov, who was the cook, Leonid Sednov, the kitchen assistant, and Alexei Trup, the footman. So really cramped, kind of like fitting all these people in closets compared to what they were used to. There was only one window in all of these five rooms that actually opened. Most of their belongings were thrown into a shed in the back of the house, including Nicholas's diaries and Alexandra's letters, and even some of the toys the children used, such as the brownie box cameras that they loved so much. In charge of this hellhole was Commandant Alexander Avdeyev, a staunch Bolshevik. His men were a bunch of factory workers in need of money with zero experience dealing with guns, fighting, or anything else soldier-related. They made many mistakes, accidentally dropping a grenade here, shooting a gun without meaning to there made for a solid and safe living environment. While in Ekaterinburg, every day was pretty much the same. Get up, pray, eat breakfast, make sure they were present for roll call, read, sew, play games, help with the chores, etc. 
Funnily enough, the kids wanted to change their bed sheets every day, but that was super expensive, so they had to do their own laundry. They really didn't mind, though. They just wanted to learn how, so Avdeyev hired them a teacher since he also didn't know how to do laundry. The teacher was known as Comrade Laundry Teacher to the House of Special Purpose. Very official sounding. I want to see that on a plaque. After that, they wanted to take bread making lessons from the cook. They were given the green light. The girls really enjoyed it. It was a nice speck of light in an otherwise boring and restricted life. One of the best parts of their time there, which is strange to say, but was when they were given permission to go outside for 30 minutes. This was once in the morning and once in the afternoon. There was a small garden they could walk around in and stretch their legs, breathe fresh air, let their pups run around. Since Alexei still couldn't walk, Nicholas carried him about, or Leonid, the kitchen boy, pushed him outside in his wheelchair and kept him company. Technically, the guards in the imperial family weren't allowed to talk to one another. But that didn't stop Anastasia and Maria, who had a hell of a time pulling the guards into conversation. Eventually, the line dividing the family and the guards completely disappeared. They were all chatting and laughing together. Then, things drastically changed, all because of a birthday and a surprise inspection. While in a Potiv house, Alexandra turned 46, Tatiana turned 21, Anastasia turned 17, and sweet, sweet Maria turned 19. And that's when it all went wrong. One of the guards, who was sweet on her, managed to sneak in some contraband. A cake. He and Maria stole away together so he could give it to her. And then the worst thing that can happen, happened. The Bolsheviks walked in. Time to tighten security. Too much niceness going on. Goodbye, Evdeyev and his inexperienced guards. Hello, Yakov Yarovsky and his band of assassins. Yakov Yarovsky arrived in Ekaterinburg on July 4th, 1918, and things immediately changed. Guard positions were shuffled around after the new guards arrived. The single open window granted to the Romanovs had iron bars installed. If the family didn't feel like prisoners already, that definitely would have done the trick. Oh, and not to mention there was a fucking machine gun aimed at the Romanovs' rooms at all times. A few days later, Nagorny was arrested after trying to stop one of the guards from stealing a gold chain belonging to Alexei. He was shot a few days after that. That's the price of loyalty. So where is Derevenko, you ask? The other sailor nanny. Well, when it all went down, he joined the revolutionaries. So remember when we mentioned how a lot of people, after the abdication, just started leaving? Yeah, Derevenko was one of them. Yep. So on July 12th, while Maria was reading to Alexandra, who was stuck in bed with really bad back pain, they heard soldiers marching outside their window. What did this mean? The White Army was getting closer and closer to Ekaterinburg, and they had the numbers to take the city and save the Romanovs. Likely nervous and trying to figure out their next move, the Bolsheviks got together for a meeting. What to do? It was only a matter of time before the White Army arrived. Lenin didn't want the family killed, supposedly. He wanted Nicholas tried while Alexandra and the children were left alone, supposedly. Lenin claimed that murdering the family would make the Bolsheviks look bad. And perception was everything. And Lenin, you are so right. So the crazies in Ekaterinburg wanted the family dead and disagreed with Lenin wholeheartedly. So they decided they would execute the family when the time was right and Yorovsky would be in charge of it. On July 13th, Yorovsky started looking for a place to get rid of the bodies. He found a place in Koptyaki Forest, near mine shafts that no one really went near anymore. It was isolated and perfect for what he had planned. Satisfied, he returned to Ipatev House. Something super interesting about this day is that Nicholas wrote his final diary entry. This is a man who journaled every single day for decades. 
And all of a sudden, without any explanation, he stopped. And to this day, no one knows why. On July 14th, a Sunday, Father Ivan Storozhev was invited to the house for services, which was strange since the family hadn't been allowed to observe Mass with the priest present until now. During the service, when a prayer was said for the dead, with the saints give rest, O Christ, to the souls of your servant, where there is neither pain nor sorrow, no suffering, but life everlasting, the family all kneeled down, except Alexei, since he physically couldn't. This wasn't a usual response to the prayer. Did the family know what was coming? Father Storozhev was pretty sure he did. On July 15th, four women came to the house to clean the floors. Yurovsky didn't want the family to think there was anything amiss. The girls were excited to help. It would get them moving again. Yurovsky wasn't thrilled about that, but honestly, who the hell cares? They wanted to help, so they did. What was he going to do? Send them to their rooms for doing housework? Oh wait, he couldn't, considering those were the rooms that were getting cleaned. The cleaning ladies were sweet, smiling, and laughing with the girls. When they entered Ipatov house, they still believed the Tsar and his family were touched by divinity. When they left, they realized that the Romanovs were just people. Normal people. Just like them. So on July 16th, Yurovsky returned to Bolshevik headquarters in the morning. Tonight was going to be the night. The time had finally come for Yurovsky to murder and dispose of 11 people because, yes, the servants were always a part of the plan. As Yurovsky and his men hurried to get things in order, the family went about their day like normal. Breakfast, prayers, a morning walk. During this time, Yurovsky made sure to contact Moscow and let them know what was going to happen that night. There isn't any evidence that Lenin cabled back or approved the execution, but most historians think he got the message and did in fact give the green light. During dinner, Leonid, the kitchen boy, was told to pack. He was leaving. When the family asked why, Yurovsky lied and said it was because the kid was heading back home with his uncle. Honestly, he was going across the street to another house because Yurovsky didn't want to kill him. The rest of the evening followed the same old pattern. Evening prayers, get changed for bed, and then after the children went to sleep, Nicholas and Alexandra played some cards before turning in themselves at 10.30. When Yurovsky was figuring out who was going to be doing the actual shooting, there were a couple men who flat out said, no way in hell. Not because they didn't want to kill the family, no, they didn't have a problem with that. But they did have a problem with killing the Grand Duchesses, and they didn't want any part of that. Killing girls, that's where they drew the line. So they were sent with the kitchen boy across the street. One last time, Yurovsky sent a message to Moscow. It didn't go through since the lines were down. Instead, he sent the message to Petrograd, which was then forwarded to Moscow. Did Moscow respond? Who knows? It's a mystery. What we do know is that the message was sent so close to the scheduled execution, you know, air quotes here, guys, that it was probable an answer might not be received. So was it done on purpose, to ensure no one changed their minds, or to give Lenin and the government plausible deniability? Regardless, the event was set. The house was quiet. Yurovsky was waiting. And it was finally time. At 1.30 in the morning on July 17, 1918, Yurovsky woke Dr. Botkin. He told Botkin to get everyone up and dressed. The family needed to be moved for safety reasons since the White Army was getting closer. The family got dressed, putting on the clothing they had sewn their jewels into. Alexandra had a belt that contained several strands of pearls. The girls had their camisoles, and Alexei had his undershirt. Both he and Nicholas were dressed in soldiers' tunics. The family and their servants... Okay, let's be honest, by this point, 
They're their friends. Entered the hallway. First came Nicholas with Alexi in his arms. Behind him was Alexandra. She was having trouble walking because of her sciatica, so she relied on Olga's help to stay upright. Following behind were Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia, with Alexei Trup, Ivan Kheritinov, and Anna Demidova at the end. Even though Yurovsky said no to dogs, Anastasia refused to listen. She picked up her dog, Jemmy, and took him with her. The family exited the house into the courtyard into the fresh air before going through another door and descending into the cellar, where they were ushered into a small, empty, 11 by 13 room with only one window that had been boarded over. Alexandra asked for a chair. There was no way a woman in her condition would be able to stand for long. And so two chairs were brought in. One for her, and Nicholas placed Alexei down in the second. Then, Yorovsky placed the family where he wanted them. He claimed it was for a photograph. There were two rows. In the first was Nicholas, Alexei, and Alexandra. In the second row stood Dr. Bakken, Demidova, and Haritanov, not necessarily in that order, behind Alexei and Nicholas, while Olga, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia, with Jemmy in her arms, stood behind Alexandra. Yurovsky left the room for a moment, and when he returned, a group of men followed him in. Yurovsky pulled out a piece of paper and read from it, after asking everyone to stand, all but Alexei did, announcing to the family that they were to be shot. Everyone was confused and horrified. What was happening? They weren't being moved somewhere else? This can't be happening. Read it back to us one more time. Yurovsky kept reading, and when he was done, he pulled out his gun and shot Nicholas, who fell where he stood. That was the signal for everyone else to start shooting. Alexandra didn't even get a chance to finish crossing herself before she was killed. Dr. Botkin, Alexei Trup, and Ivan Karitonov died next. But the children and Anna Demidova? All of them were still alive. So no matter how many bullets were fired at the kids, they didn't penetrate. That was because of the jewels sewn into their clothing. They were like makeshift bulletproof vests. Alexei was at a severe disadvantage. He couldn't run. He couldn't make himself a smaller target. Nothing. So when his chair toppled over, Yurovsky shot him in the head while Alexei held on to his father's arm. The girls huddled close to one another, falling into old habits. The big pair and the little pair crouched down low in separate corners while screaming for their mother. One of the men, when he noticed that Olga and Tatiana were still alive, tried to stab them with his bayonet. That didn't work because of the jewels, so Yurovsky came over to finish the job. He shot Tatiana in the back of the head and the other guy shot Olga in the jaw. They died with Olga lying on top of Tatiana. Then the men turned their attention to Anastasia and Maria. Maria was already wounded. Earlier, she'd been trying to find a way out of the storeroom, which was locked, when a bullet caught her in the thigh. Cue the bayonets. Again, a soldier tried to run her through, which didn't work. So once again, Irovsky stepped in. He shot Maria in the head, while the other guy then shot out. Anastasia, when he finally realized that stabbing the poor helpless girl wasn't going to work. Anna Demidova was still alive. They had trouble killing her. She was a fighter. But once they had her cornered, they took all of their anger out on her. They stabbed her over 30 times. Then, after 20 minutes of chaos, there was nothing but silence. We can only imagine the carnage and blood that covered the floors. Honestly, there are so many accounts of that night. So many of the men involved were drunk. We can't know for sure who shot who. But the account we've given is the one that at least two sources by different historians have corroborated. 
When the dust settled, or in this case, the gunpowder dissipated, Yorovsky checked the victims for pulses while the other men went around using the butt of their rifles to make sure everyone was dead. Disfigured and bloody, they all were. This was no execution. Let's get that straight. It was not an execution. This family was not tried, judged, and sentenced. This was a massacre. It was savage, brutal, and those children spent the last of their moments in complete and utter terror. The girls watched their mother and father die, their brother die. What happened to the Romanov family and their loyal servants on July 17, 1918, was nothing short of murder, plain and simple. No matter what your opinions on Nicholas and the things he done, he had done and all the bad shit that he allowed to happen as Tsar, you could argue that he deserved his fate. But did those children be honest? Since they were all dead, looting their persons for valuables was A-OK at this point. While Yorovsky made sure no one pocketed anything, it doesn't make the action any less repulsive. So he took a little lie down, killing is such exhausting work, while his men put the jewels and other expensive items on his desk. There was only one thing left to do. The men brought down the family's sheets to wrap the bodies in, and carried them to the truck that was waiting to take the dead away. While moving one of the girls, maybe Anastasia, she suddenly woke up, screaming. The poor girl was still alive, at least for a couple seconds more, until she was shot once more. Jemmy, Anastasia's pup, was also dead, and it's very likely that all the other dogs were killed as well. Only Alexei's dog survived. With the bodies loaded onto the truck, they were off to Kaptaki Forest. There was more work to be done. All right, and so ends the Romanov family, plain and simple. Guys, thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of Dear World Love History. This brings us to the end of part four of our Romanov series. You know, as we said, the family is gone, but their story is still unfinished. There are many things that happen once they're gone. The last and final chapter of this mini-series will be out one week from today, Saturday, October 12th. Yep, you guys voted on Twitter. One week from today, you got it. All right, as we said, it's unfinished, and we're going to be taking this story all the way. What was done to the dead? The aftermath? What happened to the rest of the Romanovs? The Anna Anderson controversy and how the Romanovs entered the spotlight once more. You don't want to miss it. And if you had to grab tissues at the end here, know that you're not alone. All right, guys. Historians out. Do you watch Friends? Do you watch How I Met Your Mother? Then Then you should should listen listen to How I Met Your Friends. Hi, I'm Kathleen. And I'm Julie. And we are the ladies behind How I Met Your Friends, the podcast that explores the similarities and theories of Friends and How I Met Your Mother. Every week, we watch an episode from each show and dive deep into the crossovers and catchphrases. So if you've ever noticed the similarities between these fantastic shows, come check out our podcast. You can reach us on social media at How I Met Your Friends Pod or email Pod at gmail.com.